What's up, ladies and gentlemen? It is your boy, Kyle Conkeel, here with another episode of the Just STFU podcast. <clears throat> now, I didn't know whether to label this one episode 21 or 22 because the ripcast I did yesterday, but I decided that the ripcasts are going to be their own thing. So, this is episode number 21. The guest I have on today is Mr. Mike Catherwood. I've been listening to him on the radio since before I went through puberty. And I'm a huge fan of him and his work. If you're from the greater Southern California area, or maybe if you even listened to late night radio all across America, you've probably heard him. He was on the Kevin and Bean morning show on the world famous K-Rock. And he was also on Loveline with Dr. Drew for almost 10 years. He is also known as Psycho Mike. So we, but we get, we get into that in this podcast too. And also he was on the, uh, Midday Live with Dr. Drew, and I don't think he's doing terrestrial radio anymore, but he does have a couple of podcasts that you can check out. You can check out Great News with Kevin and Mike, where he has a podcast with Kevin of Kevin and Bean, and he also has the Mikey Likes You podcast, which is about physical fitness, mental health, and all things super positive. Both shows are really positive. They're both really great shows. And if you're just looking for a break, need something fun, funny, or maybe even something uplifting, be sure to check out both of those podcasts. Again, great news with Kevin and Mike and Mikey Likes You. And go ahead and give a boy, give my boy a follow on Instagram and Twitter, at Mike Catherwood. I'm super stoked I was able to get him on here. As I said before, as a longtime fan, it was really awesome to sit down and talk with Mike for a couple hours. And uh, I do want to say I had to edit a few things out of this podcast, mainly just just for my own personal reasons. You'll see, or you're, you'll hear when it happens. I just I didn't feel comfortable saying um, someone I used to date's name on here. Uh, so out of respect for them. I decided to remove their name from the podcast. But other than that, it was a really fun one. I had a great time. And please enjoy my conversation with Mike Catherwood. Mike Catherwood, legendary Los Angeles terrestrial radio personality. How's That's it going, me. bud? <laughs> Sounds so official. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know you started your career as an assistant producer on the Kevin and Bean show, or am I mm -hmm. missing something before that? Well, I mean, I, I started in radio at, at the absolute entry level job, like really essentially a custodian at K-Rock uh, here in Los Angeles. I didn't really have any aspirations to be in broadcast. I, it was, I was, uh, I was a struggling musician. I thought I was gonna be like you. I, I, that was honestly 
my dream in life was to be in uh, a metal band, hard rock band, you know, be it hardcore or something core at the end. Um, And um, I got a job at K-Rock amongst other side gigs to just pay the bills while I tried to find other people to play music with after moving back to LA. I was living on the East Coast for a bit. And um, I just started being a goofball and these weird set of circumstances came about where they had a job up opening it at the Kevin and Bean morning show. And I, I got it. And again, at the, the very, very bottom of the totem pole. And um, yeah, that's, you know, things just started to unfold from there. It was, um, it was very, I was very, very, very lucky, very fortunate, right place, right time kind of thing. And then um, I also found something that I really, really loved and and for once people kind of told me i was good at something yeah and it completely changed my whole outlook on everything yeah um so yeah that's how it all started well to kind of jump forward a little bit i really thought i really thought this was funny so when you were doing um love line with dr drew um actually one of my former bands was a guest wow really oh yeah and I begged them, I begged them, because they only it was just the singer and the guitar player. And I, be- I was like, listen, I don't want to be on the show, but like, can I just come be like a fly on the wall? And they're like, no, PT. That was my nickname. It stood for part-time, which actually ended up being true. Um, uh, but yeah, it was the band In This Moment. Oh, yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> and uh, I, they- I, I always found that so strange. I mean, I guess it, I, with certain genres it's not surprising but in general just like hard rock bands like big sounding anthemic you know fist pump and hard rock bands i always found it so um disheartening how kind of temporary a lot of the members were you know because i had this idea that everyone was going to be like aerosmith or yeah you know that 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 there was like this this hard rocking community and everyone was you know i'm all about my brothers and and that whole thing but i certainly wasn't a stranger to it because i came from like grindcore death metal and that's a and you you know every major band has 540 members you go to their wikipedia and it's like (laughs) past members but uh, yeah i always i always had this like beautiful kind of aggrandized vision of the the mainstream rock scene that i i don't think ever was really true you know yeah. And I mean, even right now, my band is going through a lineup change. You know, we've we're having to look for a new singer, you know, during during global pandemic, I guess, is probably the best time to have to replace your front man. Yeah. But it's still never an easy thing to do. Um, and there's you know, there's been a lot of fan backlash, which it's I, I kind of feel like we're starting to we're we're starting to kind of see who our like real fans are. Yeah, um, that aren't just there for the uh, you know the the face and the voice uh, of the front man. Um, but it's, it's hard, it, you know, especially with social media now. Oh yeah, you're, for, you're super you know for ninety percent of the history of American rock music, or what should, I should say for for rock music in general, you know, bands didn't have to deal with that. It was there may be internal turmoil. There may be someone who technically isn't holding up their end of the bargain, and it's like we got to replace this guy or gal. Yeah. Now you have to factor in all this feedback that just, frankly, isn't healthy. 
And, um, you know, you see it in, in pretty much every entertainment outlet, whether it be broadcasting, acting, music, you just, uh, this other factor is, is brought in and it's, I, I feel like it's, it does the artist a disservice, you know? Yeah. And I mean, you know, speaking of kind of like things changing and, and I remember, you know, like I said to you before we started recording, like uh, I've been listening to, you know, you on the radio, uh, whether it be with, you know, Kevin and Bean or Midday Live with Dr. Drew, Love Line, like pretty much, pretty much a sense as long as I can remember. And I, and I know like the past few years, especially for, for K-Rock, you know, shit, shit's gotten a little weird. I know that, um, they kind of, well, not kind of, they did, they ended Kevin and Bean after 30 years. Yep. Um, and I know they did it for a little bit with, uh, with Kevin and Allie in the morning. And then I just heard a few days ago that, uh, that Kevin's going to KLOS with Doug mm-hmm. the slug. Mm-hmm. So I was like, cool, Kevin will be on the radio again. That's awesome. And you also do a podcast with Kevin. I do. Yeah. We just started it, um, at the beginning of this year and I love it. I love it. I love, I, a, I love working with Kevin. I mean, I read the dictionary with the guy if he wanted me to. Um, but also we do a show that's, it's a new show. I mean, it's kind of silly to say that, but it's all focuses only on positive and uplifting stories, which there are millions of, but none of the mainstream outlets want to focus on that right now because it, it really doesn't drive ratings. And, yeah. um, but I do think it's, it's a good service in the sense that not not like I Kevin and I are bringing light to the world, but what it does do is it exposes the fact that this is reality. Yeah, people helping other people, people people being nice and humane is reality, and that you know media for the most part filters out all of the fun happiness and puts forward the divisive, angry stuff because that's you know that's how they pay the bills. I mean, you know, uh, they say that lies spread faster than the truth and bad mm-hmm. news spreads faster than good news. And I guess that's just just the way people are. They're more likely to share something that uh, that sounds bad than share something that is positive and uplifting and like moving, which I don't really understand. I prefer, you know, if there's anything negative in, my, in, in any of my social media feeds, um, I kind of just try to filter that out. Yeah. You know. And I know that, you know, because of when you started doing radio, terrestrial radio, mm-hmm. um, and then you kind of have been able to see, like, how things have changed between, like, terrestrial radio and then kind of, like, you know, stuff like this, like the, right. the emergence of, like, podcasting and uh, internet radio um, and stuff like that. So do you do you think that terrestrial radio in a, in a sense as how you knew it before will ever be a thing like no. it was no no it, it's exactly the same as the record industry yeah will never ever ever be what it was when you and i would get excited about going to the the this the record store or yeah. you know and, and you're like i gotta pick up this cd this new band and then look at other stuff and maybe even buy music that you weren't that familiar with because you like the cover art and yeah i used to do that all the time (laughs) right that doesn't happen that it doesn't happen and um that's not good or bad that's just it's reality change and because like i i 
like to wax poetic about how invested I was in the music that I listened to when I was a kid. But at the same time, you know, when I talk to 19, 20 year old kids, because of the streaming services, they're so much more savvy on a broad scale of music because they'll listen to whatever artist they're into. You know, they put in Bad Wolves, Spotify or Pandora is going to spit out a lot of other bands they probably didn't know. And they like they get exposed to it. They like it. They learn it. And yeah. uh, it becomes much more of a uh, they get almost like a boot camp in in music that they like. Yeah, I mean, that's that's how that's how we got to to the place that we got was we got added to a lot of uh, if you like this radio stations, Mm -hmm. you know, like bands like Five Finger Death Punch or Breaking Benjamin or, you know, other popular bands that were like, oh, hey, if you like this band, there's this band. Yeah. And uh, because the uh, because of that and then our, you know, success with uh, our the first single we ever dropped was, you know, the 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 Cranberries cover zombie. Mm -hmm. And uh, to this day, <clears throat> I went like movie guy there for a second. Uh, to this day, I remember I was driving home from work and one of my buddies, like one of my producer buddies who just so happened to be listening to the radio. I think I was listening to a podcast and I was driving home from from my day job and he's like, bro, turn on K-Rock right fucking now. So I pulled over to the side of the road. And I turned on and there was fucking Ted Stryker playing us on K-Rock. And I was like, Jesus, you got to be fucking kidding me, boys. I've been listening to this radio station since I was fucking five years old. And the first time ever, I mean, I I couldn't even explain to you how, like, excited I was to hear something I was a part of be played on, like, on a radio station that I grew up listening to. And then to kind of see it go, like, I know it got bought out. I'm not sure who owns it now. Um, but to kind of see like something that I would, I remember so fondly and grew like, I would like, even when I was, you know, driving to work, like before podcasts or I never really subscribed to Sirius or XM mm-hmm. or, you know, now they're both the same thing. But, uh, that, that was my thing. I would listen to, to K rock in the morning and to kind of see it's, it like th- not, that is one thing though. That is one thing that I do think is beautiful that won't ever be the same is mm-hmm. that you know if you're 20 and you're in a in a band now or you're a, a, an artist i don't think you have that same like major league baseball player dream of like one day i'm going to hear myself on the radio and that goes people like to wax poetic about the there's real artists in the world that don't care about that kind of stuff but you, you can go back right now go kurt cobain said that the one of the biggest moments in his entire life was hearing Nirvana on the radio. That was, yeah. it was overwhelming. The idea that you, you, that was, you know, and I do believe I do honestly, and the same thing goes for podcasting versus traditional radio. I do believe it's, it's correct. And it's good. The place that we're going where the people with the ideas are in control. I like yeah. that. I like the idea of someone having a, a belief in themselves and an idea and there's no one to prevent them from going after it. There's no gatekeepers. I love that. But yeah, when I, oh. back in the day when there was a lot of gatekeepers, when there was record companies and there was radio, there was something magical about getting to that point where you're like, we, we did it. You know, we could, uh, of 30, 30 seconds of Mars, I was there the first time they were played on K-Rock. And, you know, Jared Leto's like, a multi-millionaire superstar and he was like a giddy little child running sprinting with his bandmates 
to get to a car so that they could hear their own song on the radio. It was, it was, you know, there's something magical about that. Yeah. And, and I, I, and I do agree with you that like people, the idea with the ideas are kind of more in control now, instead of having, you know, having somebody micromanage, look over your shoulder. I mean, this is the second time I've had a podcast. I mm-hmm. kind of, I, I had one four years ago and uh, I just kind of took a hiatus and then never started again. Then I figured, you know what? I'm not doing anything now. Let's try to get as many right. interesting people to talk to, but I wanted to do it by myself. Like I wasn't in this to do it, to make money. Like I don't make cash on any of these podcasts. I literally right. just do it for fun and to, t- and I try to talk as many people who excel in their field and to just try to get to know different types of people. Like, you know, I've had on, I had on Jimmy church who was on mm-hmm. coast to coast for a long time. Uh, I had on, um, Randy Williams, who is like, um, a CFO in uh wind Chun Kung Fu, nice. you know, like he, he like knew Bruce Lee as a kid and shit. So it's just like having different people and not having someone like harp over me to be like, no, you're a musician. You need to have this sort of content. I'm like, like, no, I'm going to do this exactly how I want to do it. Like when I was a kid, I've always wanted, there was like a few things that I really wanted to do. The first is ever since I was eight years old, you can thank Green A's Dookie for this, but I've always wanted to be in a band. Mm -hmm. Second of all, I always wanted to be on the radio or to be a professional wrestler. (laughs) So it's like now all, there's a there's a common through line with all of those with all those fields of, of work though. I mean the idea of creating something and then performing it. You know, that's that's the reality of what all of those lines of work mean is that you know, like wrestlers get a lot of shit because of the the kind of the cartoonish nature of it, but the best wrestlers whether they're heels or their faces, they create a character and they're good at, and they're good at delivering in front of, in front of a lot of people, you know, when you get to the, you get to the top, that's, it's not easy to do. You could talk to any Broadway actor, the idea of traveling around the country 200 times a year and going into an arena with a live camera and then being able to deliver like that. That's special. Yeah. That's really special. I mean, shit, the undertaker did it for like 35 years. Same character too, which yeah, is same character, impressive. like fucking shattered both of his fucking uh, his uh, what's what's that his the eye, orbital? yeah, orbital, his yeah. orbital his orbital bones in both eyes, both hips <laughs> replaced, <laughs> shoulder surgeries. I mean, like it's not real in the way that UFC is real, but it's definitely not fake like if you look at no, but guys it's more, like it's more real in other ways i mean yeah. there's some of the best fighters in the world you get them on the mic and they don't deliver and yeah. obviously if we're going to talk straight up physical punishment and, and, and engaging in something scary obviously a, a real professional fighters worlds above a yeah. professional wrestler but the level of fear that comes with getting on a hot mic in front of that many people. Like I said, I mean, there's a reason why the the ones that are great at it usually transcend into other stuff. I mean, Jericho is another perfect example that he, he obviously has musical talent, but he has such unbelievable charisma and yeah. he's such a unbelievable performer that you, 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 it makes a lot of sense. And John Cena and the rock and, you know, continue down the line. Yeah. I was very fortunate to meet Chris Jericho and, uh, we were playing the same, there was like a festival. It was like us, 
Shinedown, Fozzie, a few other bands I can't really remember, but I remember as being like a longtime wrestling fan Mm -hmm. when I was a kid. And uh, I remember like I see Chris Jericho like walking down the hallway and I was just like, hey, what's up, man? Uh, I'm Kyle. I play for Bad Wolves. Uh, I was a huge wrestling fan and I'm a huge Jericho fan. Like, I just wanted to say what's up, dude. And he's like, oh, cool. Thanks, man. And uh, later on after the show, I'm walking down the hall and he goes, hey, Bad Wolves guy, come here. (laughs) And I was like, all right. And he goes, oh, you want to have a drink? Oh, here's the blue meanie, by the way. And I was like, oh, fuck. And uh, we just we like we hung out in uh, in their dressing room, had some drinks, talked about wrestling, you know, hung out with the blue meanie. And we were talking about like the time he went to the fucking Royal Rum or uh, the WrestleMania and shit like that. And and talking about like Van Halen and, you know, and I was just like, gee, this is like. 13 year old Kyle is like shitting his pants right now. Yeah. No, I, I, I know Chris pretty well. We did dancing with the stars together. That's right. I forgot you were on dancing um, with the stars. I, I have nothing negative to say about anyone that was there. Um, everyone was really, really, really nice to me, but Chris and I, out of all the cast members, he, he was so cool. So easy to get along with. And, um, we, we still keep in touch. He, he, he's a really excellent dude. He's a, he's a really really cool guy he was he was super nice to me and i was and i appreciated it because you know they always say you know don't meet your heroes yeah and luckily for the most part i say 99 percent of the people that i've met that i've been like a fan of i've been really fortunate that they're not pieces of shit i i couldn't agree more you know there's there's a handful of people where i'm like oh yeah that was not fun but um you know, I yeah, I I've been really lucky at, at Loveline, especially because of the the nature of the show. There's these huge chunks of time where you get to talk to people on the air, but there's also these massive chunks of time where you get to talk to them off the air. Yeah. And you know, when Slash or Jerry Cantrell or someone comes in, it's all I'm always like so pleased. It makes me feel really good to drive home after that night. I'm like, oh, he's he's a really nice guy. You know, it makes me feel good. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I was always curious. So for a while, you were known as Psycho Mike. Yeah. Where did you get the name Psycho Mike from? It just sounded good. And like there was there's a thing in radio where you almost kind of have to have a nickname unless you have a really cool name. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, there's Jed the Fish. There's right. Doug the Slug, you know. yeah, And, you know, Bean's not... Bean's real name, of course. Yeah. Um, Baxter. Unless you have some cool name that rolls off the tongue, or it, for the most part, especially in the old days, someone above you, someone that had some type of authority over you, gave you a name, and you were kind of stuck with it. Mm-hmm. And my last name is really long and multisyllabic and doesn't sound all that great. And there's a million mics, so they were constantly like, "Well, what do we call him?" When they started bringing me on the air, and um, Kimmel was visiting one day. He was a guest and we were in the green room after the show, just shooting the shit. And uh, I had done or said something that was rather crazy. And I walked in the studio and he's like, oh, and here comes this psycho. And Ralph was like, we should just call him that. And then that's that's where it came from. And I, you know, it was a blessing and a curse because it's it's easy to remember. And people are like, oh, psycho Mike. But it was kind of a curse in the sense that like people would meet me and they're always so not only shocked, but kind of like disappointed. 
because I, I don't <laughs> I don't really look all that psycho, you know. I'm, yeah. I'm very unassuming in person, so I, I, I think and I'm a, I'm always a lot smaller than everybody assumes I am. You know? um, so how how tall are you? Like five ten. Ah, oh, you're my height. Yeah, but but people, I think they assume with Psycho Mike, they assume this like WWE guy is going to show yeah. up. <laughs> but I remember when you started doing Midday Live, you were you you wanted to get rid of the Psycho. Yeah. What uh, was there a reason behind that? Well, I didn't. I didn't necessarily want to get rid of it. Like I was ashamed of it in any way. It was just, you know, you transition into political talk radio. It's yeah. a whole different world. And the program director there was like, you know, we can do away with that because it might harm like at least the the imaging of the show with a physician as your co-host and stuff. Yeah. You're not at a rock station anymore. You're you're at a, the same station as, you know, Sean Hannity. Yeah. You know, that where he made his bones and stuff. So um Harry, stop it. Um, so that, that just kind of was those said, I was like, I'm, yeah, I don't care. I, I'm indifferent. So they just kind of moved away from it. Okay. I wasn't sure if you're like, you know, listen, I'm not, listen guys, I'm not psycho Mike anymore. You know, no, I mean? no, it wasn't anything like that. It was more of a, honestly, it was like an indifference to it, you know? Yeah. So before, again, before we started recording, I was kind of talking to you how, like when, cause I, you, you know, if you know, Mike and you follow his Instagram, which you should. At Mike, is it? At, it's at Mike Catherwood, right? Yes, sir. Yes. Yeah, at Mike Catherwood. Uh, he's in great shape. He's he's a very chiseled, handsome, handsome man. No, thank um, you. <laughs> and uh, before we before we started recording here, I was talking to you like how I went from beefy to buff, and mm-hmm. then back to beefy because, um, you know, uh, we were touring two hundred plus days out of the year, and then you know I got home. I was in Milan, Italy. It's actually shit. What what's today's date? It was 20. it was actually the last show I played was one year ago today. Really? In, uh, in Budapest, Hungary. And we were in Milan about a week before Milan shut down for COVID. Mm-hmm. And I got home, moved into the place that I'm in right now in March of last year, and then I was working my day job and on March 13th they're like hey uh we don't really know what's going on but we we have to close and i was furloughed oh my god (laughs) and i and i was saying you know (laughs) the one thing i really miss about being in a relationship is somebody to scold me because when i'm depressed i eat like a small child with with a credit card yeah (laughs) i mean who doesn't though i mean i'm the same way i i think that there's this idealized version of people who are like in great shape or at least give the appearance of being fit mm-hmm. because a lot of people that are ripped and buff are in terrible condition, you know, internally. Yeah. Um, but it, that there's this idea that they live their life like these saints that eat perfect all the time. I, you know, I, I fluctuate and, and the only time I find myself consistently not doing the things that I want to do is when I'm in some type of emotional funk. Yeah. Is there, is there a certain, like when you're in that emotional funk, do you find yourself trying harder to be in better shape? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's an overcompensation thing. And look, that's the addict in me. Yeah. Talking, you know, I always, I have to reach for something to cope with 
with any type of emotional turbulence. And, you know, obviously my life's a lot better now. Yeah. But it was a lot easier when I could lean on cocaine and whiskey. Yeah. It was a lot more clear cut, you know, in in a sense that things were easy to kind of classify. It was like, I feel bad. Okay, get high. Bum, yeah. Boom, done. I stopped worrying about anything. It, yeah. was, it was like, I had a problem, I had a solution. And that's you, not the case. Anymore. Yeah. Do you think, and, I, and I'm not, and I don't mean this in an offensive or judging way towards anybody who's found sobriety. If you have found mm -hmm. sobriety, you know, fucking great. That's amazing. I'm proud of you. Mm -hmm. um, but in all of your years hosting with uh, with Dr. Drew on Loveline, do you find it more that people who are former addicts like kind of need something to fill that void that isn't there anymore? Absolutely. Like, uh, almost to a T. Um, yeah. And, you know... <sighs> I think that that's at the heart of what recovery is all about. And when recovery recovery is effective is that you start to develop those tools to hold on. My Harry, Harry, Hey, ah, good boy. I think you start to develop those tools of realizing that you can't fill holes with external things. You have to look inside yeah. to, to deal with whatever it is you feel that is lacking. You know, oftentimes, character flaws and shortcomings aren't even real. It's, it's a perception. Um, but at anything external is not, not going to fill that hole, but almost to it. I don't want to make a generalization, but everyone I've ever known, including myself has always fallen into work addiction, exercise addiction, um, you know, or, or if they don't go sober, they just kind of replace their drug of choice, you know, mm -hmm. Uh, real common ones like what they call mar marijuana maintenance yeah. which is for me like fine I, whatever if you can function that way that's great I'd much rather have you smoking weed than eating Percocet but it does seem to be a, a pretty common thing oh, okay yeah I wasn't sure I mean I have you know I, I've mm -hmm. dated I've dated somebody who was sober for at the time we were dating six years and uh I remember she would always, she would always overcompensate with her work because she, she loved pills <laughs> mm -hmm. and, uh, but she would try to overcompensate with her parenting and, and, and her work to try to like, I, like you said, try to fill, fill that void that, that isn't there. So I was, I was really just curious because I think out of anybody, anybody else, I mean, how long did you guys do Loveline? What was that like? eight years i did yeah but just like un, just under 10 w with drew and i together but the show is on for 30 something you know yeah longest running syndicated show i think ever and Damn. um yeah i it, by the time i got to love line i i think that things had been squared away a little bit more for me yeah um but certainly for the first five to 10 years of my career in radio, I, I flip flop back and forth between being addicted to work to actually building my career and then being addicted to just attention. Yeah. Where I needed, I needed that 
to feel like I was okay. I, I constantly needed people to be looking at me and you to feel recognized um, and, mm -hmm. and so you that, felt good about yourself. You know, that I think it gets really dicey for people in the entertainment industry um, where, you know, people make this assumption that because um, especially in rock, hip hop and acting, their jobs where drug and alcohol abuse is not only accepted, but sometimes kind of embraced. Yeah. That that's what makes it so hard for addicts. My personal opinion is like, sure, it's a factor, but I know that being around drugs or alcohol makes no fucking difference for me and my recovery and my urges. Yeah. But being someone who makes a living getting people's eyeballs on them, that does. That makes yeah. it a lot harder. And it because that it makes you screwy when you start to analyze how are people perceiving me versus who am I really and I should do what I can to be that person as opposed to do what I can to make sure that the person people see is always top notch, you know, and that's a, that's a, a weird kind of internal dissonance that I think makes a lot of people go wayward. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that, that definitely makes a lot of sense. Like you're kind of cons concerned with how people perceive you kind of regardless of who you actually are. Absolutely. Like, I mean, I think a lot of people, even people who aren't in the entertainment industry deal with that so much more now with social media. Yeah. Right. You curate your image for the people to see it's, it's so much worse for someone when that's your livelihood. Yeah. And I, I have, I have it easy because I think you get better at your job as a broadcaster, the more you are yourself. Yeah. The less curated your on air and on mic persona is the better you become. But someone who's an actor, someone who's a front man, someone who's a, a you know, in a, in a rock band or a, a hip hop artist, a DJ, someone where you have to have this aggrandized creation mm -hmm. or else you're not you're just not very good. Yeah. Um, and then also now, because of the way things are, uh, where now there's millions of tabloid outlets, anyone who has a, a Twitter account can can put you on blast you're so highly, highly acutely aware of your day-to-day -day image Yeah, that it, uh, it's, it's very inhuman. You know, I think one of the big kind of purposes of life really is to get comfortable with who you really are yeah. and to lean into it, you know, to, to do the work, to find, who you really are and and to start behaving in a way that's congruent with that yeah and when you have to worry about what your publicist says and what the twitter followers feel and what your critics think it's man it's a much tougher job i think you know i see it with my, my wife's an actor and i see that so much and certainly with my friends that are musical artists where like i for instance kid rock He's not in recovery, but imagine what it would be like if he really had a problem. He's like, I got to quit. It's so much harder 
to do that when you have 80,000 people at a festival that want that are demanding you come out as this drunken badass, you know? Yeah. Or, or Stone Cold Steve Austin, you know, where yeah, yeah, yeah. there's these there's these lines of work where it's you almost feel a, a, a you almost feel an, a need to keep up appearances of someone who's this hard living, tough talking dude. And that's got to be so hard. That's got to be so fucking hard. You know, I, I I have talked to certain musical artists, country guys in particular come to mind where they're like, you know, I my idols were Waylon Jennings. Yeah. And, and George Jones, it's so hard for me to make, to find balance in the idea that I can't drink anymore. That's yeah. so much harder than the, just the average person. You know? Yeah. Yeah, that's, you know, I had a really good point I was going to make and then something fell and I, <laughs> and I had a brain fart and completely lost it. Don't worry, happens to the best. <laughs> happens and but, i'm not saying it happened that, that i'm the best but it happens to david letterman and howard cern and oprah <laughs> trust me um but fuck i i literally i literally literally fucking lost it all right so we're i'm i'm going to i'm going to not so smoothly move into um what is the podcast you have with with kevin Ryder called called great news great, great news, news with kevin and mike and uh title kevin. sums it up we just try to do happy stuff and Kevin is one of the most well-spoken radio disc jockeys of all time. He's the George W. Bush of broadcasters. I love it. I love it. I, I re- that's one of the things I really miss is those highlights of Kevin misspeaking. Yeah. It's about, <laughs> he's writing a book right now. And uh, he, and it's going to be good, trust me, because some of the stuff, especially in the, Early, late 80s early 90s yeah the record industry and the fm music industry gloria <laughs> i have i have three dogs one of them's a puppy who's 80 pounds and she's just a, a terror but that's uh, fine i'm, I'm um, surprised my dogs haven't started barking <laughs> just hearing mine um <laughs> they uh the stuff that happened with you know depeche mode and nirvana at the heights and and then on into the late 80s with like corn and stuff like some of the antics and the lifestyle that these radio broadcasters were living like kevin and bean especially when they were you know the biggest rock radio station in in the world these stories need to be told yeah i said i will pay all money all money i can find to make sure that you do an audiobook and you read it <laughs> For those of you who don't know, just just go to fucking YouTube and look up Kevin Ryder fucking speaking bloopers or something, yep. or just look Anything up Kevin like Ryder. That, you'll find gold. <laughs> so, oh, I remembered what I was gonna say. Now, um, we when we were talking about you know you were talking about being yourself as as much as you can being an on air uh, uh, radio is yeah. Um, and I honestly, I really think that. Even though COVID has been super shitty, you know, like I said, you know, we've been doing a lot of touring, everything shut down the whole, I mean, for a while there, like it felt like the whole world was at a standstill. But the one thing I do appreciate and take away from having to go through a global pandemic like this is I really feel like I've been able to figure out who I was. I mean, Mm -hmm. not to toot my own horn or sound cocky, but at the time that we stopped touring we were like our trajectory was just kind of going 
Like I, I, I didn't really see a slowdown or a standstill anytime soon. And no, you it, especially after Zombie dropped, it was pretty meteoric. Yeah, you know. And I, I don't know who I would have been if, you know, I, I felt like I learned so much about myself this last year. Like I, I realized, uh, I figured out how to be alone and by myself. And granted, the first few months of like living in a new house, you know, and not being on tour was some of the most depressing times I've ever had. But mm -hmm. I felt like I really got to know who I actually am and what type of person I am because I was forced to be around only myself. Mm -hmm. And, and there... well, that's really important because our life now, especially more so than ever, it's been more so in the United States, I was going to say the West, but I honestly think even more so in the United States, more so than anywhere else in the world, we are so just controlled by achievement. Yeah. Um, our life and capitalism and the American way and the structure of our society is just so unbelievably driven by do, 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 which yeah. is in and of itself, very beautiful and has a lot of upside in which one of the reasons why America is so amazing. Yeah. But also I do think that it detracts from just humanity and your existence as a homo sapien. I don't think we were put on this earth to be overscheduled 20 hours a day. Yeah. I don't think we were put on this earth to live as kind of cogs in a wheel. We're, we're animals and yeah. We need those moments to get in touch with the world around us and understand who we are and all these things. And I agree with you completely that COVID and the lockdown in and of uh, overall has been a complete fucking shit show and has destroyed most of our lives. But there has been a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful upside. There is a silver lining in that it kind of forced us to get in touch with like, what we're doing here, who we are as people. And there's only when, when shit really hits the fan, there's only kind of two ways you can go. Your back's against the wall and you're either going to go, all right, well, I'm going to double down and I'm going to pivot and figure out ways to grow, or I'm going to wallow in this and it's going to destroy me. Yeah. And you're, you're starting to see those the decisions that certain people have made, you know? Yeah. And as, I mean, as shitty as this sounds, <laughs> um, <laughs> Harry, it's okay. Harry, uh, as shitty as this sounds, I know, I know a lot of people who, who are close to me and close friends who've, you know, COVID, I don't, I wouldn't say COVID destroyed their relationships. But I think because it forced you to kind of really reflect on who you are as a person and who you chose as your partner. Yeah. That, I mean, I I kind of feel, I, I, I definitely feel for people, but I feel like sometimes you just, you need that to kind of like, because if you're stuck with somebody <laughs> at your house 
and you're just you're used to being like oh whatever she he or she pissed me off i'm gonna go to work and then go out and you know hang out with the boys after and you're literally only going to sleep and waking up next to that person not really spending any quality time with that person uh because it's just like oh we'll cross that road later you know what i mean but i really think that's another thing that the pandemic kind of provided was you kind of reflected on like Jesus Christ, this is who I'm going to spend the rest of my life with. Dude. And frankly, Godsend. Yeah. Godsend for all you people whose relationships fell apart during COVID. It's hard now. It's probably miserable dealing with a breakup or a divorce. I went through a divorce. It's terrible. Yeah. But you had someone not only put a mirror in front of you, jam it in front of your face and go, I'm with someone where we're together, but we're not connected. Yeah. And that's a miserable existence. How many people go through long marriages, long relationships with someone that they don't, they're not really that connected with. And I, my wife and I have the best relationship, top of the heap. And it's been fucking impossibly hard to make it through (laughs) the lockdown. So I can only imagine, man. And I do feel for people though that that are going through that because it's 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 miserable but man i always used to tell people on love line this girl would call up and she'd say i gotta get my boyfriend back you know he cheated on me and you know he did this and we're, we're having a hard time we break up we get back together, we get together i just want him back so bad and i go but why but why yeah. like really think about it you you got the greatest gift ever you didn't have to suspect you didn't have to think you got a clear-cut piece piece of proof positive evidence that you guys aren't good for each other and that should be the greatest gift ever just move on because life is way too short now all this all this waxing poetic i'm doing goes right out the door if you have kids right if you have kids i understand there's got to be different deals made but if you don't man it's like the old louis ck joke he he used to say uh my buddy you know my comic buddy just is all miserable because his girlfriend and and he and his girlfriend have to break up. And I'm like, wait, you're not married? You don't, you can end it with a phone. You don't have to call a lawyer. This is, <laughs> what are you bitching about? This is the best thing ever. It just ended. Be over. Your life is way too short to be with someone that we, we aren't really into. Because just like training and nutrition, people always get on me about like, well, I do this, but I get so sore that I, or I'm training so hard I can't sleep, or I'm eating all these foods that I don't really like and I'm miserable, but I'm losing weight. I go, no, no, no. working out and eating right should make your life better. Yeah. Not worse. And the same thing goes for your partner. Your partner should enhance your life. Yeah. And if they're not, that's not a good thing. I really hope that, you know, when these people who have gone through, you know, sort of separations, divorce, breakups during the COVID, I really hope that when they do choose their next partner, they they can think to themselves, would I make it through a global pandemic with this person? Mm-hmm. Or also, how about this? How about when this is all said and done? Uh, and and we all feel this, right? We all work hard. Right? We just got, I just got through saying about how we're all overworked and, and, yeah. and underpaid for the most part. But you get that Friday night where you're sitting around and you're like, am I just going to, I'll just sit around and watch Netflix. You're like, no, 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 no. I'm going out. I'm going to go for a walk on the beach. If I, if I don't have anywhere to go, I'm going to go be 
out yeah. in the world and experience things and live my life because God knows I know what it's like to not have that luxury. Dude, and, I I was such a fucking like I was I was one of those guys who like my boys would invite me out and I would just always say no. I got I got into a really bad habit when I was with my ex of not wanting to upset her to ask mm-hmm. her to go go hang out with the boys while I was home from tour. Mm-hmm. So that kind of trans transitioned over into my my life without her. Right. And I would it would feel like like oh, I don't I don't really want to go do that, but I would get butthurt if they didn't invite me, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, but I know now like once this is said and done, like if my friends want to hang out, I'm going to go fucking hang out with my friends now right. because I mean I, I'm i considered high risk. So for the first three, three or four months, there was a couple of times where I, where I left the house because I had to do band related things. But I think there was a period of time where I was in my house, like getting my groceries delivered, mm-hmm. where I did not leave the house for, this is probably in the beginning, almost six weeks. Yeah. And I, I'm sure there's a lot of people in your same boat and it's, it's terrible and it's hard, but if there's any, like I said, if there's any way to look at the upside, it's that man, you're going to appreciate that shit a lot more. I was, uh, I was talking to my drummer, um, the other night we were, we were, we were at a restaurant having dinner, which felt fucking really weird, but it was great. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I was like, I was like, dude, I'm kind of scared to see what happens when, especially Southern California, Los Angeles area, when the bars open up. And I mean like when they open up. Yeah. You know, uh, I I, so many pregnant people. (laughs) Well, here's the thing. A lot of people, uh, you know, in Southern California and a lot of circles that I run in, um, you know, drug use is, is typically, uh, like seldom, like really done only really socially. Like, I don't know anyone to my knowledge that is just like bro i really need a bump of coke right now yeah yeah but i'm just like when the bars open people are gonna go mad so i'm really anticipating a spike of um alcohol related incidents and cocaine related incidences i i I wonder because i've i've always found obviously drug use and drinking is a very social activity Mm -hmm. but when it gets dark it's a very isolated activity Yeah. when it really goes bad. And that's why that's actually been more of my concern during the lockdown yeah. is that I'm starting to see people develop habits around drinking and drugs where I go, dude, you're not that guy, but being alone and being sad can yeah. sure help help that along. So hopefully I, I think there's going to be a lot more bar fights and one night stands. <laughs> hopefully hoping. though, it doesn't carry over into people becoming uh, you know, getting into it, the, the, the darkness, because I, yeah. like I said, maybe being overly optimistic, but I've always found that the, the real darkness with controlled substances exists in the shadows. It, you yeah. know, you rarely hear about the rock star or the, the super talented actor who drank himself to death or, or his, his heart stopped when they're at the sun, you know, somewhere on the sunset strip, it always happens yeah. in some fucking hotel room by themselves, you know? Yeah. I mean, luckily, I I kind of got close to that dark period in two, in about 2010, mm-hmm. where I was starting to do things behind my friends' backs. Mm-hmm. Like when it came to, 
like you know, I would go to my buddy, my uh, one of my buddy's houses, and me and him would kill a fifteen rack or a thirty rack of Coors Light, and then you know he's drunk. I would stumble home because he lived literally stumbling distance from my house, right? And then I would polish off a half bottle of Crown Royal, and I did that for like three months straight. And I remember, you know, New Year's was coming up. This was like fall, winter. I had a bunch of terrible shit fucking happen. Like I, like I got kicked out of in this moment. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, I was, I'm totally f- going to fucking name drop here. So I, I, I'm really, really, really sorry to my ex, to my ex for this. But I was, I was, so I used to date that same year. Okay. Yeah. And she like, I had the, the biggest crush on her since I was like 13 years old. And then she so broke did, up with so did me. many men. <laughs> so we were dating and then she broke up with me. And then my 16 year old Chihuahua had a heart attack and died in front of me. Like that I had since I was like fucking, you know, seven years old. Don't overlook that either. That's so hard, you know, when you're connected to an animal like that, especially dogs. I mean, sorry for all you cat people out there, but when you have a dog for a long time and it's, you know, you have a connection, it's, it's fucking devastating, you know, Uh, I I wonder though, and I'm obviously in no way judging, I'm not in a position to judge anyone because I'm the guy who used to walk around on my hands and knees looking for flex of crack in shag carpet um but i wonder though you say a lot of these bad things happened to me during this period did they did you drink because those things were happening or did all those bad things seem to happen around then because you were drinking 15 a night with a crown washing it down with a bottle of crown all right so two of those Mm -hmm. didn't happen because of my drinking okay one of them did okay (laughs) <laughs> I'll yeah, let, you, always, I'll, you always gotta wonder i mean yeah. my my dad used to always get on my case back when i was definitely using and drinking too much but i was still living i was still mm-hmm. like a human that had a job and friends things would happen to me bad things and yeah. stuff that wasn't even my fault like my car would get vandalized you know i'd be out at two in the morning i'd come out from a club and my car window would be smashed in or i'd uh i'd get go to jail for being in the passenger seat of someone else's car. You know what I'm saying? Things that I really wasn't doing. And my dad's like, you got to understand all of this, even though you you didn't personally cause this, all of this goes away. if You're not living this life. And I was like, shut the fuck up. You know, I was 18. I was like, fuck off. You know, I was just, I was going to a strip club. Leave me alone. I'm just doing what I perfectly capable of doing. Sure enough. I got clean. Even when I wasn't, doing my best in recovery. I was white knuckling and angry and miserable, but I stopped going out till 2 a.m. and I stopped being around people who were drunk all the time and child and another shit happened to me. <laughs> my car just stopped magically not getting fucked with and I stopped magically not getting my nose broken. I stopped magically not going to jail. And yeah, it, it is weird how that the, the, the two kind of there's a Venn diagram of even if you're not being an irresponsible prick, just being in the world of irresponsibility can. No, dude, and I totally I totally agree. So when when I was asked to leave in this moment, I was 23, about to be 24 years old. And like to me, that was like the end of my career. Right. And then, you know, my my dog dying and then I started drinking and I probably did the hardest drinking I've ever done. October, November, December. And I remember New Year's Eve was coming up. And uh, I told all my buddies because they had kind of started to notice like how much of a fucking drunk I was. Right. Like I was just down to party every day, every single day. 
Uh, mind you, I was unemployed for most of from September to December. So when I started getting a job, when I finally got a job again, I was Eric, like, well, "Hey, when I when I got a job, no, it's fine. Uh, when I got a job, and, and I was, by the way, and let me remind people, we've all been unemployed, we've all lost jobs and been on hard times. Losing a job when you're that young, that's being in a popular cool band, and then being unemployed, way harder than you know <laughs> working at AT and T shop in, yeah. and you lose your job. Being yeah fucking awesome and rad and having coolness and then having that just yanked away from you is way tougher and uh so i i got a job and i was still i was still like kind of functioning and but i was like oh i can't do this job hungover so i have to really pick pick my days where where i'm where i'm gonna sauce it up and then i remember new year's eve came and i just i told all my friends i was like i'm not gonna drink for i'm not gonna drink for six months and they're like, yeah, sure, Conky, you're not going to drink for six months. And uh, I made it eight. I made it eight months. And I w- and a lot of actually, like, shit started, like, kind of coming together. Like, I was asked to join another band. Uh, I was practicing a lot. I was going on a lot of auditions. And then, like, once I stopped drinking, I started losing the weight because, you know, I was 24. You fucking, you sweat once a week and you can drop 10 pounds. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I just, I stopped drinking. and I lost a shit ton of weight. I was kind of getting my shit together. And then one day I was just like, hey, I, I, I want to have a beer. And that beer didn't turn into 14 more. Right. And I was like, oh, okay. So I think if I would have gone a little bit longer... I wouldn't have been able to go back to only like now I can have yeah, one beer. No, for sure. And, and and that's you're detailing the difference between an addict and a normal person. You know, there's I I get so many people who write me or open up to me, they say, I I don't know if I'm an alcoholic, I don't know if I'm a drug addict, I just do this, this, and this. And it, of course it's really hard if you're in a band, if you're in college where even non-alcoholics are drinking every day you know it's it's a really really hard to make that kind of decision i always say the difference between an alcoholic or an addict and, and a normal person is that partying a lot is fun until it's not yeah and then when it's not the normal person stops yeah the addict keeps going yeah. And that, that is certainly true with me. And it's certainly true with every addict I've ever known is that it was, dude, I loved my life in 1999, uh-huh. but by 2000, 2001, it, I, I, I so desperately wanted to stop drinking and using and I could, yeah, I absolutely couldn't, no matter what the circumstances were around. Yeah. Yeah. And I was definitely, I was definitely appreciative because, um, you know, addiction does run on my dad's side of the family. My dad, um, he died of cirrhosis of the liver when he was 41. Oh my gosh. Yeah. 41 years old. And he drank himself to death. I'm 41, man. That's, that's heavy. Yeah. So like that side of my family, like, you know, we're Polish and Irish, you know, Mm -hmm. we love the sauce, (laughs) but I, I was, I was, I was really glad that I was able to, because I knew a lot of my friends, especially around that time, 2009, 2010, who kind of just let themselves kind of just take, let that take over. Right. And I'm glad that I was able to be like, you know, this isn't normal, like what I'm doing. 
and then like feeling the need to like try to hide it from the people that I was surrounding myself with too. Mm-hmm. That's when I kind of felt just real, real dirty. And I was like, okay, we need to do this, but we need to tell everybody because if you don't tell everybody, you're just going to keep doing this. If you have people who are going to kind of be like, bro, I thought you said you weren't going to drink, right. you know, and you know, have having these, um, um, uh, other people's opinions of you really matter. I don't think I, I, I don't know where I would be today. So I'm very it's, fortunate. It's, it's, it's totally, you're totally right. And it's actually, you, you should feel very fortunate that you have that kind of support network. I always used to, not so much anymore, but 2005, 2006 ish with the Lindsay Lohan's Amy Winehouse's yeah. that, that kind of culture. I used to, uh, I don't want to sound like some fucking cornball that's pandering, you know, like, I, but I used to cry. I'd go home and I'd cry for some of these people that I did not know. Yeah. Because I knew being young, mm-hmm. having nothing, no money, no job, no anything, mm-hmm. and being surrounded by a loving family great friends and everything and i and having all that and how fucking hard it was to pull pull it together and to get in to really commit to recovery i can't imagine what it would be like to be young and to have nothing but yes men around you yep. and to have a shit ton of money yep and to have people thinking it's crazy how you go clubbing and you get dragged out of the club and so ha ha, ha. Yep. I, I just I recently dealt with it with Ben Affleck where I was on Access Hollywood reporting maybe a year ago about how, you know, he was checking into rehab and I, and I was so overwhelmed with sorrow and, and, and I, I felt such compassion for him because I'm like, it's, it's just a million times harder for a multimillionaire who's surrounded by a million people who would just tell him whatever they need to tell him to keep him on their good side. Yeah. No one probably, you know, I'm sure maybe his wife and kids, but you, you just you got to think like when you're that in, in, in that situation where everyone around you is like, oh, yeah, you're just Ben being Ben. And look, you have four fourteen million dollars liquid. So we're, and you just signed on to do another movie for eight million dollars. What's it? What's the problem? You know, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I can't imagine. I, that was what broke my heart about Michael Jackson when I watched that this that his documentary that came out yeah. posthumously, I was like, dude, he didn't stand a fucking chance. No. He just didn't stand a chance. I mean, he was literally in the limelight his entire life. No one to tell him no. No. Not no. one person. To, and everyone was just like, well, just keep performing. Everything will be fine. Yeah, performing. yeah, yeah. He was taking propofol to go to sleep nightly. And Dr. Drew told me when Michael Jackson passed away, he said, I... Propofol is such a strong drug that I'm reluctant to give it to anyone unless it's the most long-term horrendous, you know, like some type of stomach tumor removal would be the only time I would, because it is such an unbelievably aggressive um, anesthesia that I would never even think to you. I can't even recall a time when I would think to ask for propofol. And he, this is what the man took nightly. Jesus. You know, so it's just, well, it's a whole different world. Well, I know Prince was doing something similar. I'm not yeah. exactly sure. I don't remember what, what, uh, what, what he was doing, but, uh, I mean, 
that that's pretty much exactly it. Like, uh, and that's kind of one of the reasons why I was glad I never, like, as someone who's 35, there's going to be 35 this year and mm-hmm. has been very fortunate enough to recently, you know, within the last few years, start making money off of my, off of my craft. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, when I was, when I was 15, you know, and you're just young, dumb and full of cum and you're like, I'm going to be a fucking millionaire rock star and I'm have all yeah. this money. And sh- I'm really fortunate that that never happened. Like, yeah. I really think, you know, when there had, there was some pretty big gigs that I was offered, uh, when I was in my really early, <coughs> excuse me, in my really early twenties that I'm just like, imagine having that paycheck at that age. I'm really fortunate I didn't no, because you're dude, I, I say the same thing. I mean, I we talked about it at the very beginning of the podcast that I I wanted to be you when I was 18, 19. I was that was dead set on me. I uh Dave the King of Mexico always he one time he, he said this made this analogy and it always stuck with me. He's like, You're the ha- you're like a happy Gilmore because <laughs> You know, two or three years after being hired by Kevin and Bean, I started to develop like a career and stuff. And I was still always like, yeah, but all oh, this band asked me to go play guitar with them. And then I was um, I'm still writing songs. I'm trying to. And I always wanted to push to be a rock musician. That was all that was all I ever dreamed of doing when I was a little kid. Yeah. And if that happened. I'd be fucking dead, even if I wasn't successful. If I got a good touring gig, one, when I was 19, when I was in, moved to San Francisco, I was in a death metal band and we were good, but we were good in the death metal world. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, it's, it wasn't like we made money. And, but if I, if I transitioned and something fell through and I joined Morbid Angel, I'd be dead. Absolutely. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Cause I mean, th- that's one thing you might not make money on tour, but no matter what, for the most part, no matter what size band you are, there is always a rider mm-hmm. and on that rider is usually beer mm-hmm. or some sort of, you know, alcohol. Like I know with bad wolves, uh, we, we wouldn't really try to, we would have some, some booze, but you know, being as our former singer was like a, a, a sober guy as well. Uh, we wouldn't take it with us, you know? So it was like some days we would touch it. Some days it would just kind of sit there and be kind of wasteful. Yeah. But, and I, I, you guys strike me as, professionals too i mean i think that you really genuinely care about your performance you care about the records you make yeah that that plays a role you yeah. know like a bit i mean don't get me wrong your boy gets turned every now and again sure, but it's sure, not no, like... well, yeah, you're young and you're <laughs> successful you deserve it. every look i don't care if you you're a cop or you're a teacher everyone works hard and that you deserve the ability to let off steam yeah but but you also know like it, it is it's it's kind of gross when you see people who continually find success even though the musical part of it they're phoning in the lifestyle yeah. they're taking in full full steam i mean kid rock said it to me on loveline he uh of kid rock Gary, off. It's just the mailman. mailman. Sorry, mailman. No, it's fine. Um, Kid Rock said it to you. He said, uh, people always say, oh, touring's so hard. Harry, hey. People always say, yo, touring's so hard. 
being a rock is so hard. It's like, no, it's not. Partying and being on tour is really hard. It's like, <laughs> going downtown playing music? Yeah, you know, you just sleep with night. But it's a great life. It's fun. Yeah. Not being hungover and not doing that, not not having any sleepless nights, it's actually pretty easy compared yeah. to most people's job. Yeah, because I remember... Um... <clears throat> In 2019, September of 2019, I was like the biggest I'd ever, like the second biggest I'd ever been. You know, I'm 5'10". I was probably pushing 230, you know, and uh, I was starting to see pictures of my friend, my, my, my friends who uh, would come to the shows and take photos. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, is that really what I look like? Right. And I'm not, I'm not, I, from 2010 until now, I'm not really that big of a drinker. Like, I can count on how many times I had drinks during the pandemic on one hand, you know, the last year. Um, and I remember I was I was really, really, really trying to lose, like, 10 more pounds. Like, I got down to, like, 193 or 195, and I was trying to just lose that last 10 pounds right before the tour started. So I was mm-hmm. just like, all right, I'm not, I'm not going to drink the first three weeks until I can, until I can make it down to, to 185. And, uh, and then I remember like, as that was going on, I'm like, this is like, sometimes it was a little hard. Like when you get off stage and you know, like one of the boys has, has a drink, but then like after a while, I was like, Oh, I don't have to play any of these shows hung over. Yeah. Cause like, you know, we were getting like Trulies and White Claws and that shit's like pretty high alcohol and there's, you know, it, there's sugar alcohol in it too. So it gives you even a worse hangover. Yeah. Um, and I was like, damn, was I really playing all these shows in the summer? This fucking hungover, like that hungover. I, yeah, I, I remember very distinctly, um, probably like 2006, 2007. And I went to Las Vegas with my family, my family of origin, uh, it was my brother-in-law and my sister's like 15th or 10th wedding anniversary. And they were going to get remarried at like an Elvis deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, so I went with my whole family and I hadn't really been to Vegas since getting clean. And I was just at the time when I was actually starting to like make, make money. Not, I wasn't rich by any stretch of the imagination, but like, you were, you I were comfortably well, you pay my bills right. and I didn't yeah. have to worry about rent. And I, I, yeah. I, I was like, I'm, I'm a man, you know? Yeah. And, uh, we got to Vegas and we went out for the first night, went out to dinner or something. I went home and watched like Dateline, fell asleep, woke up at six in the morning and went to the hotel gym. Right. And I'm going down the escalator to go to the gym, uh, six in the morning. So, and I see these three guys coming up the escalator. One guy's missing a shoe. The other guy's shirtless, you know, and, and they were young guys. And I'm like, oh, like, oh, I was like you. Now I'm going to the gym instead of coming home. Like, I feel now my whole day is going to be productive and fun and happy. Your day is going to suck. You're going to sleep till 5 p.m. Yeah. And then go do this again. And and Lord knows, I'm not trying to judge doing that every everyone's young everyone's everyone deserves to blow off steam yeah my point was though that i I, it was like these the the both directions of this escalator were like these different phases of my life and i had i really noticed how things could change you know yeah and that was one thing like i said like some nights were harder than others but like i said i'm not you know i'm not like a sober guy i had like you know I, i wanted to do half the tour 
with with no drinks because mm-hmm. I wanted to lose lose more weight. I mean, unfortunately, I got the flu and I ended up losing the weight faster than. <laughs> oh, such a good diet method. <laughs> the, the flu is a great diet method. Um, and and then I got down to the weight and I was just like, well, I got down to the weight, but I still I was just like, I've been kind of it's been kind of nice not drinking. Sure. And then you know after my three week you know half the tour was was gone. I was like, all right. Now it's time to party, boys. And then I was like, oh, yeah, now uh, I remember I'm not going to drink on show days anymore. Yeah. <laughs> to drink before the night before show days anymore. Because there was there there was one time where I literally felt like I probably gave myself alcohol poisoning and having to deal with that and then still having to be entertaining. Because it doesn't matter if you're sick. It doesn't matter if you're hungover. It doesn't matter if you fucking shit your pants. Mm-hmm. Like... Nobody cares. Nobody they're cares. not. They're not there to yeah. see you mope around. You are still there, and even being a bass player, I still have my civic duty as a member of this band to perform. As yeah, people I was. paid money, people yeah, paid people, money to see you, right? Yeah, people. So it doesn't matter. So I was just like, I can't. I I cannot do that. I, I was in Milan, Italy, just being an idiot. But <clears throat> still, Milan's a great place to be a dickhead. Yeah, it was great. I felt we found a rock bar and like I was just like we were out we're out with the boys, you know, some of the from some of the other bands on the tour and I was just Everyone's like, really good looking. It's a great it's, it's a great it's place. Ridiculous. To, yeah. It's ridiculous. I'm like like just seeing like and yo, I'm not I'm not gay in any way, shape, or form, but I know when another dude is handsome. Oh, I'm yeah. just like no, I, I don't really. I don't stand a fucking chance here, boys. There's there's <laughs> four or five places where I've been where I'm like, this is this is insulting. You know, like, <laughs> I remember being, I, I remember being a little boy in places, um, I, I, Brazil one and Korea where I'm like, dude, these guys are all good. Like really good looking. Like, yeah, there's yeah, a yeah. very disproportionate amount of really handsome people here. I, I don't <laughs> understand this. <laughs> Brazil is great though, but everyone, I really, I really feel like 90% of the population of Brazil is attractive. Yeah. Well, both places, Brazil and uh, Korea. I've never been to Korea. I want to go so bad. It's a, it's a, it's a cultural kind of. Um, I don't want to say accepted, but it, it, it's foundational to the culture to be attractive. It's totally okay to get plastic surgery or to wear mm. clothes that are make you look. You know, where even even in the U.S., we do have some weird shame about like being hot. Yeah, you know, like you know, women have to play it down. You always hear like the Megan Fox or Jennifer Aniston on the red carpet. She's like, oh, you know, the girl will be like, you look fantastic, Jennifer. Yeah. Oh, but you should see me in the morning. I yeah, I look awful without makeup. It's all you know, like there's places around the world. You know, Mexico is very similar too. It's like, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I fucking I'm killing it right now. And, and, <laughs> and it's totally okay, and I, I think that's actually kind of beautiful. I remember I used to I used to strictly only date. Latina women like in my good call yeah uh, during my mid-teens to early 20s and uh yeah I'd be like damn girl you find she'd be like I know yep <laughs> but it's it carries with it a, a great risk like Latina women are I'm, I'm physically most attracted to Latina women yeah um but you cannot fuck around no nope. you will get a shoe to the face you get a chocolate will, life, they will end you. They will yeah. crush your soul. Um, if, if that's you, why I just stopped dating them. 
<laughs> That's why I had to stop dating them. I uh, I saw a funny meme that said uh, any guy who's dated a Latina woman should put that on his job resume because it shows <laughs> that you can deal with any type of adversity. <laughs> Fuck that got me. Speak speaking of memes, I, I I've always I've always kind of known this about you, and I and I just and I just want to say like I'm I'm putting myself out there to be on the receiving end of this because I know you are the king. Okay. Of fucking gross, hilarious. Listen, weird shit. I'm happy to I'm happy to include you, but just know what you're doing. <laughs> know what you're doing. That's all. <laughs> Cause I, I, you know, I, I've listened to, I've listened to Ralph Garman, you know, ever since, you know, he's, he's left the, the K rock as well. Cause I just, I think he's a fucking hilarious human being. Like everyone who I, every, so talented. everyone who I like felt like was just super funny. You know, like I, I followed you from, you know, from going to K rock to, um, you know, to, uh, KBC was it KBC. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was just like, you're fucking hilarious, so I'm gonna follow you. Um, but I remember Ralph would talk about some of the shit that you would send. Like he wouldn't detail it, but there would be like reactions of like yeah. you sending Ralph stuff, and I was like, I don't know if I if I want to know, but I really want to know. Yeah, Ralph, Ralph, not a fan. <laughs> He's not a fan of that. <laughs> like, there's some people that will do the, hey, stop it. And I do. And then there's the people that like, they'll say it, but I can sense that they're just putting up a pretense. And, and like for Dr. Drew is always like, Oh, the, why do you send me these things? But then of course, you know, <laughs> I continue just, like Ralph, Ralph, there's no, there's no, there's nothing vague about it. He hates it. <laughs> so do you still keep in decent contact with the, uh, the people that you've, you've worked with before at K rock? Yeah. Pretty much everybody. Um, yeah. Obviously, Kevin the most because I yeah. see him, you know, pretty frequently doing the new show. But Dave, Omar, Beer Mug, they're they're my friends. You know, like we're friends. Ralph, um, not as frequently, but certainly we we exchange texts and talk and stuff. And COVID's been weird about it, you know, obviously because we can't go do stuff. But uh, yeah um bean i even though he's in london i still talk to bean you know probably weekly yeah i I thought it was weird that like because uh i remember i lived in seattle for a while this Mm -hmm. was probably i was 22 so yeah like 13 years ago and um because he would be like because he wasn't in la for i don't even i don't even know like the last 15 16 years of that show was on the air maybe more yeah um but he lived in seattle and then he went to new orleans mm-hmm. and then he went to london but yeah. i know he did have some other underlying health issues too or, or were he did for a while like some serious one those are all have been remedied and he's he's in good health but uh there was mostly he just didn't like living in la he's a very oh, private I don't, person I don't blame him i don't blame and him are, it, are you are you an la native oh uh-huh. yeah born and raised oh, same I was born at St. Joe's in Burbank. Nice. <laughs> I was born at uh, Cedars. Oh, oh, so you're like you're 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 real then. You're yep. like real Hollywood. Yep. I was. Uh, <laughs> my parents were eating at Love's Ribs. Remember oh. Love's? Used to, I do. Yeah, I do. Like pre uh, 
Tony Roma's uh, and it was like a ribs plate that my mom went into labor and they were out in that neck of the woods. Um, but yeah, I, I, I love LA and I, I appreciate it. And I'm one of the strange people like you, who's actually from here, but I get it. It's, it's, it's a burden. It's, there's just so many people and everything's even more so than my time living in New York city, obviously New York's really populated, but New York's kind of scrunched in it's everything's kind of within your reach yeah you know and and getting across town to public transit you can walk a lot of i used to walk pretty much everywhere yeah that's not happening in los angeles like i don't i really don't think people understand i had a friend of mine uh he's from not from los angeles this was probably like two years ago he he came to la for vacation and asked if i would do his podcast while he was here mm-hmm. and i was like yeah fuck yeah um and i live in venice beach and he goes um i'm in i'm in uh malibu i'm only like five ten miles away from you so you know let's just let's do it like early in the morning we can plan you can just come i was like dude that's like 45 that's like an hour hour and 15 minutes in traffic he's like but it's only like five miles i was like that's like an hour and 15 minutes yeah especially especially you want to go to pch overwhelming and everything's an issue I, i get that i do i i understand the chaos and stuff my wife and i are actually looking for places to move to buy keep a place you know rent a place in la because both of us are in the entertainment industry but move somewhere else because it's just yeah it's a hassle and my daughter now she's six Mm -hmm. and the other day i'm at the park and there's these tweakers you know ripping their clothes off rolling around and stuff and i i go for walks with my dogs and there's needles in the street and i'm like would would I at any age my daughter was any age 15 25 I don't give a shit would I feel comfortable with her being by herself and the answer is absolutely no no fuck like no. my daughter could never be like I'm gonna ride my bike to the store I'm like no you're fucking not and that's not a way for a kid to grow up you know she should have that luxury I mean dude there's even that you know that documentary that just came out on the Cecil Hotel on yeah. on on Netflix like I mean, we. I don't know if there was like an underlying uh, mental or psychotic issue with, with the uh, the lady who you know disappeared, mm-hmm. but um, but I mean, dude, like that part of town, man. Like, dude, I'm not a small guy. Like I yeah. said, I'm five ten. I'm about two twenty right now. You know, I'm not a little little guy. Mm-hmm. I would not fucking go near that hotel. Well, yeah, just because... based on the area it's at. I, I get a lot of fan, you know, feedback and stuff and people are like, ah, I I can handle myself out there. You know, I'm a I'm from Kentucky. I'm a big boy. I lift weights. I've I've trained MMA. I was like, you don't understand. Like, none of that matters when a guy has a gun. And that's what you will encounter. Or or somebody on PCP. Right. It it and like it's not it and it's not a good thing. It's not no. like a feather in the cap of Los Angeles or or Southside Chicago or Baltimore. Yeah. But it's not like, hey, you got a problem. Let's step outside. Like, it's so, it's like living in Syria. And yeah. it's, you know, and, and people shouldn't grow up like that. People, yeah. I, I don't, you know, I don't think that that's like appropriate. People really, maybe it's just because of the entertainment industry kind of being just so like centrally located here in Los Angeles, Hollywood, and Burbank. But people really over glorify Los Angeles. Like I have a lot of friends who come here and, you know, from other states, other countries. And I always tell them like, just let me know where you're staying. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Because I would rather tell you if it's not, I would like to let you know if it's a safe area or not. Yeah, there's that. And then also people grossly misjudge the entire city because of the 3% of people who live here that are in the entertainment industry. Yeah. And they have this idea that Los Angeles is this like super progressive, you know, fun house of the extremely wealthy disconnected. And like the reality is, is that that industry and the people in the tech as well drive so much money and so much attention that you get that, you get that uh, impression. But I always use the analogy of the Laker game. You go to the Laker game. Yeah. The first two rows are dudes wearing sunglasses indoors with a girl that's 40 years younger than them. Mm-hmm. And uh, they came in a Bentley and, but the rest of the entire arena is fucking, it's fucking construction workers and cops. And yeah, it's working class. You know, normal. It's a, it's a very, very working class place and a very, very violent place that's punctuated by this in- incredibly preposterous industry, you know? Yeah. And like how, People don't realize the scale of Los Angeles as a city either. No, 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 you don't. Even even people who live in like Chicago or Atlanta. I was like, you don't like, I don't think you like my parents live in Pasadena. And that's Jesus. Yeah. You know, and so if you lived in Philly and you're like, oh, my friend lives by King of Prussia, by King of Prussia, like, well, I'll drive there. It'll be. I was like, no, my, my parents might as well live in, in San Francisco. I'm yeah. it's, 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 there's like a, there's a scene in Blade Runner at the very beginning where it, like, it's like a overhead street where it opens up to the whole city. Like yeah. that's really it. Like it yeah. really just goes on forever. Lights and lights and lights. Yeah. I mean, like when, when my stepdad was, uh, was still alive, he was staying at the, uh, the VA hospital uh, off seal beach off the 22. Oh yeah. 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 And I was living in Santa Clarita at the time. Oh yeah, he might as well have been in Vegas because yeah, it literally well be took me three and a half hours to get there, there and back. Yeah, and that's what forty miles. Yeah, forty-eight miles. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so, just the difference yeah. between like the difference between Calabasas and and um and Pasadena, yeah. or you know, fucking uh, uh, West Hills to where fucking um like downtown LA is, I mean, like it's, and, but I I do appreciate the, the diversity of like the cultures, you know, I've said this before is um, like, if, you know, if you're a guy who goes out and enjoys nightlife, like if you're tired of the Hollywood scene, you can go to Pasadena. You can go to, yeah. Echo park, Highland park. Like, and there, and everything that was uh, always something that I um, appreciated about interviews with David Lee Roth or, um alex uh not alex um uh, michael uh the bass player michael anthony yeah uh, from van halen is um they would always talk about like the early time in van halen mm-hmm. and they said being from la unlike most bands especially in that era who moved to la to the sunset trip like we would set us apart it's like we'd have to play a show at a biker bar in riverside Mm-hmm. And so we had to play some fucking ZZ Top and we had to know how to play you know, uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan and we had to nail it. Then we'd go play at a black club in Inglewood and we better know how to play some Commodores and some Spinners and some uh, Otis Redding. And yeah. we had to nail it. Then we go down to Venice and we had to brush off our like punk. 
And then we, you know what I'm saying? And that, that it really did give you like a good insight into the weird diversity of, you know, like there's, there's the biggest country Western radio station. Um, I, I, up until about five or six years ago, I don't know how the streaming has changed it, but the, the, the most listened to country Western station in the world is in Los Angeles, not in Nashville. It's not in Dallas. It's in LA. It's a, it's a really weird, strange place. And that's one of the things that I, I do find the beauty in is that growing up here, everyone's pushing this narrative of diversity and the, the wokeness and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. I go like, it's, is this life for yeah. me? I did my, my family had many gay friends in the early eighties. And when I grew up, there was just guys that were in relationship with guys. That's, it didn't make any, it wasn't an issue for me. There was very few white protestants in my school growing up ever i yeah I knew nothing but like really 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 vast and diverse cultures vast, and different yeah types the, of people. the volume and the variety of of culture that you're kind of just plunked into it does it there's no there's no contrived effort to be uh tolerant to any you just like that's you were born you were like born your life with it. Is, yeah yeah and i and i definitely don't take that for granted I mean, uh, and that's a good point. Like, I grew up, you know, like, dude, like, I'm from Tahunga, man. Yeah. (laughs) There was, like, there was so many, there was so many different groups. It was such a melting pot of, like, of different cultures that, like, it never made sense to me to be, you know... I mean, there was a couple of guys who who thought that they were white supremacists in school, but they weren't really. Yeah. You know, because there's just a, like most of my school was Armenian, Hispanic, yeah, and black. You know, and I didn't. You know, maybe if you're from the Midwest, you don't grow up with the melting pot that is that is especially the area that I live in, which is now a primary you know Armenian um, neighborhood. Yeah. Um. No, and 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 that, by the way, shouldn't be overlooked. And I do get a bit upset at coastal folks or big city people who then make these insane conclusions about people and their way of life based on what they knew. Yeah. And I got, you know, shell shocked a lot on Loveline, being that it was a nationwide show. And someone would call up. I remember so distinctly this one kid called up and he was in rural uh, Ohio. He said he lived about an hour outside of Cleveland. Calls up. He says, uh, my girlfriend was Asian and um, she moved back to her country of origin. And I really like Asian girls. Um, What should I do? And Drew and I are like, "What, what do you mean? What do you go find a fucking Asian girl? He's like, well, what, where do I go? What should I do? And I'm like, you, that was the only Asian girl, like in your vicinity. He's like, yeah, I don't where I was like, dude, fly to LA, go 10 miles East on from LAX on the 10 freeway and get it off. Your head will blow off your neck. But you know, it really gave me a sense of like, how does one, how does one expect people to have the same reaction to different walks of life if they've never been exposed to it or if they've never been exposed to it and been taught that there's something wrong with it. Yeah. Like you can't 
just jump to this immediate saying like you must be totally tolerant and accepting of everything go like yeah. that's not reality most people have not lived like that yeah i mean like dude like my my babysitter since i was you know because my mom had three boys worked three jobs yeah you know so she i had to go into child care and i grew up with 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 black people right you know and i didn't know that they were different until it was pointed out to me when i was older you know and i could like understand so you know i'm not saying that i'm like i'm so tolerant and you know no no exactly and i i don't think i, I wasn't uh, insinuating that either about me is that i'm well, I'm the standard that we should hold people to. What the heck? <laughs> Someone's trying to call you and or FaceTime you. Who is FaceTiming me? <laughs> Stop it. But there, there was go. there was also this other thing that I noticed where people were fetishizing fetishizing um people of people of color, different people of uh, you know, like Asians, blacks, Hispanics. Yeah. Where they're like, what do you mean? I'm not racist. I fuck black guys. I'm like, <laughs> fetishizing black guys and having respect for black plenty, people. Uh, plenty of slave owners had sex with their slaves. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but, um, so you're doing great news with Kevin Ryder. Is there anything else on the horizon for you? Oh, it's, I see now. Hold on, it's my wife. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to FaceTime during our Zoom. <laughs> Never mind. All right. <laughs> I got, I unfortunately, I got to wrap it up anyway. So yeah, it's fine. Okay. I I I I got to get out of here anyway. But um, is uh, is there anything else you got going on besides great news, with Kevin? Um, Kevin? I got my own personal podcast. Mikey likes you. It's oh, I did see. I, I followed it on Instagram. I need to. Um, where can people listen to that? Uh, at, at, the name of the show is Mikey Likes You, and um, it's available everywhere. Shows are streaming. You know, any type of uh, podcast outlet. Um, and, uh, that's much more, you know, health and fitness focused, but it's also, as I've noticed, you know, a lot of the health and fitness stuff is really much more about like habit forming and understanding, yeah. Yeah. uh, behavior. Um, so a lot of talk about that addiction, you know, love life stuff, you know, so that's that. And then, uh, I'm working on a couple TV shows right now that, um, it's a bit erratic because of COVID scheduling, but, um, you know, hopefully we'll see those by the summer. Hell yeah, dude. Well, dude, Mike, I like I said, I've been a longtime fan of you. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for coming on. You can follow Mike at Mike Catherwood. You can follow his Mikey Likes You podcast yes. at Mikey Likes You One. Yes. And be sure to check out Great News with Mike and Kevin. And dude, seriously, I really appreciate your time coming on and spending so much time with me on here. And uh, to all my listeners, I will see you next week. <laughs>